0: Imagine a husband waking up, and shortly after he awakes, his wife gives him a kiss and says, good morning, I love you. Seems like it kind of it's a little more official, the way I, I just said that. Good morning, I love you. More official than affectionate, but hey, not a bad way to start the day, right? You know, waking up and getting that. But then you notice, if you're this husband in this case, you notice that shortly thereafter she takes out a notebook. It's kind of out of the periphery of your eyes. She doesn't do it right in front of you, but it's over in the corner. She takes out a notebook and takes out a pencil and makes a quick marking in the book and then puts the book away. You don't pay any mind to it. She goes into the kitchen and goes about her business and you wash your face and you get ready and then you head into the kitchen shortly thereafter and you find that she's preparing breakfast for you. And then as she's preparing this breakfast, she gives it to you. But as she gives it to you, she puts on what appears to be a kind of forced smile. Just puts it right before you. You're happy. Breakfast is there. But then you notice again at the periphery of your eye, after you give thanks for the food, you notice that she took out of the drawer a notebook. It looks like the same notebook that she had before. It makes a quick marking in it and then puts it back in the drawer. As she walks out of the room, you're curious as to what's going on, so you go and you grab the notebook, and you find that inside the pages of this notebook is a checklist accompanying every day of the month. And the heading on each page, which is the title of the book, this little notebook, is How to Be a Good Wife. And you feel, as a husband, if you're the husband in this case, a little bit disappointed. Because you might have thought, you kind of had an inkling it wasn't the case, given on the way things went, the forced smile and the tone of voice. You had an inkling that it wasn't affection that was driving the actions. It was something else that was driving the actions. The desire to be a good wife in that case. Some sort of self-accomplishment. I mention that because it could be that way with a Christian's behavior at some times. Sometimes we could go through religious acts of devotion When actually our religious acts, to use language from one minister, our religious acts should be driven by devotion. We could be like those of whom Spurgeon spoke when he said, the very posture of some people indicates that they are going through the hymn. This was in the context of speaking about praise and worship. So he said the posture of some people indicates that they are going through the hymn, but the hymn is not going through them. Right? It's this idea of kind of making your way through the lyrics, going through the motions, but it not affecting your heart. In the worst case scenario, the formalist, who the person would be in this case, going through the motions, going through the form of something, the outer form of it, in the worst case scenario, the formalist is like a wax figure in a wax museum. Looks amazingly lifelike, in some cases, on the outside, but there's no real life inside of such a one. But, Even God's people can sometimes catch the cold of formalism, right? Being at church can feel like an abbreviated workday, right? Okay, we'll offer to God some actions. I'll give him attendance. I'll give him attention, some measure of action, but little affection can be involved. It can happen. Joy can come more so from box checking, finding some satisfaction in being present in personal disciplines, right? More satisfaction in Bible reading, as a result of accomplishing that, you know, check on the box, the box, the checking of the box, kind of like, you know, step counting or keeping a good diet or doing whatever task you wanted to do and having satisfaction in doing the task. Now that, if we, ha- if we happen to fall into that, that could be um, easily unnoticed, but it definitely is spiritually dangerous. What can easily be missed also is that unless addressed, the good things that we do or participate in can be tainted not being what they ought to be. Now I say that, we'll get into the details of this forthcoming oracle from Haggai, but that may have been some of what was going on with the people at the time that this third message was proclaimed to the people. That they might have been going through the great work of rebuilding the temple, but they were doing it with the wrong heart. We'll see that as we get into the text. Just to make some context, uh, create some context briefly, Today we come to Haggai chapter 2 verses 10 through 19. We've already seen one extended oracle, the first one. We saw that in Haggai chapter 1, when Haggai rebuked the people, the Lord through Haggai, rebuked the people for their indifference. Then we saw at the end of chapter 1 that there was a word of encouragement and comfort that God gave to the people. And then in the second extended oracle in chapter 2, we saw God encourage his weary builders, Those builders who were discouraged because what they were building looked so meager and paltry compared to what it was, yet God told them what it would be. It would even be more glorious than the former temple, uh, than the temple of Solomon. But now we come to Haggai chapter 2, and we'll get into the text uh, as we look into verse 10, and we'll see the context that's created as we look at that verse. Haggai chapter 2, verse 10 reads, On the 24th of the ninth month... In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, we'll stop there for a moment to create a little bit more context. Again, we're given a date. We're given dates quite a few times. Uh, Between Haggai and Zechariah, we have quite a few dates that we can put together and develop a little bit of a chronology. Here is the 24th of the ninth month. That appears to correspond to December 18th, 520 B.C which means that this is about two months after that message of encouragement, which means that this was about three months after the people started to rebuild the temple. So that's a little bit of the context here. Now, one of the things that I'm hoping will happen with you is whether or not December 18th has some significance in your mind, and there are indeed um, historical dates, historical events associated with that date. Maybe for some of you, you say, oh, that's the birthday of so-and-so. But maybe for some of you, when you think of December 18th, you don't think of anything. I'm hoping that by the end of today's message, you will associate December 18th with the grace of God and the way in which Christians are to live their lives. December 18th might take on new significance for you. I hope that it does. Now, another reason, just to briefly mention this, why this date is significant, December 18th, 520 BC, is because, as I just noted, when you look at the book of the prophet Zechariah, you see some dated prophecies there as well. And as a matter of fact, the opening prophecy found in the book of Zechariah, remember, Haggai and Zechariah, we find out uh, this very clearly in the book of Ezra, both of them ministered to the people and brought the word of God to the people and encouraged the people as they were rebuilding the temple. We find that a little bit before, about a month before, give or take, before this message of Haggai, Zechariah's first prophecy, at least the one in his book, is given to the people. And I want you to hear it. In Haggai chapter 1, and Zechariah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, we read, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So the bad behavior of the people isn't itemized there, but we nonetheless see that God called them to repent. He called them to look back. We're going to see that again in the book of the prophet Haggai today. It's important to look back to know history, whether it's history in general, redemptive history in particular, or whether it's your own history, maybe patterns that you fell into the past and chastisement that God brought and what He did and what you can learn from it in your life. He wanted the people to look back. When Zechariah spoke to the people, they were told to look back in that general sense to see what God had done to their fathers, that rebellious generation that was brought into Babylonian captivity and so on. They heard the message. And however it specifically applied to them, they repented. And so about a month from that point, a month from that point, give or take, now comes this message that God wants the people to hear through the prophet Haggai. We turn our attention to that message. In verse 11 we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests for a ruling. Some translations say concerning the law. Essentially this, Haggai, go to the priest. That's who you're going to address this Q&A to. And I want you to ask them a question concerning the law. Now, it's important to note here, and I think this is helpful for us as New Testament priests, right? Remember, the New Testament tells us that we are the priesthood of believers. So we're going to see some application, I think, when we look at what the Old Testament priests had the responsibility to do. They had the responsibility, those Old Testament priests under the Old Covenant, of teaching the law of God to the people. They would teach the law. They would render verdicts as related to the interpretation of the law. They had a responsibility to help the people understand the law. Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 10 says, They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. In like manner, Malachi 2.7, quoting from the New King James, reads as follows, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. A great example of this, if you want to do some further study, would be Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 8 through 17. If the people had a question about the Old Testament law, they were to go to the priest's. And as you heard in Malachi 2.7, when they came to the priests, they were expected to find an answer from the priest. The priest's lips should preserve knowledge. The people should find the law on his mouth as though he's ready to disperse what the law says and the proper interpretation of it. Now, I do think as a brief aside, as a New Testament priesthood of believers, pastors and parishioners alike, I think this verse is a great encouragement for us to make sure that we Keep the prerogatives of our priesthood and grow in the grace of letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, so that when people have an answer, a question concerning the things of God, or what the gospel says, or what God has to say concerning this or that, that they might find the law or the Torah or the instruction of God on the lips of the people of God. It's not just meant to be found on the lips of a pastor. It's meant to be found on the lips of God's people. God's people are the priesthood of believers. Yes, in a very specific way, Titus chapter 1, verse 9, we see that. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that somebody who is in the call of ministry, an elder, an overseer, a pastor, is called to be able to teach the word. They have to be able to refute those who are in error. They have to be able to hold the word of God rightly, divide it rightly, and so on. But the whole body of believers, every priest within the body of Christ, every Christian should be able to communicate answers for the hope that is within them. And I think we're reminded about that. i reminded of that through the um, Old Testament priesthood. So back to Haggai. Haggai was to ask the priest a couple of questions. Here we go. We'll walk through it and then we'll see the lessons that are to be gathered from it. First question, verse 12. If a man carries holy meat in the fold or the, the wing of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priests answered, no. Okay, in the Old Covenant, right? So in the Old Testament, we find the Old Covenant. We find in the beginning of the New Testament as well. But the people were under the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, the flesh of the animal that was offered as, say, in the sin offering, was regarded as Holy. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 25. So when you look in verse 12 here in Haggai 2 and you see that expression, holy meat, the idea is that it was consecrated. It was set apart. I know we're used to thinking of holiness as it relates to God is holy. He is indefinitely, intrinsically holy. He is intrinsically set apart. We think of the moral purity of God. He is light in whom there is no darkness. We think how we're called to be holy. Holy. That word holy means to be set apart. God's intrinsically set apart. No one ever set Him apart. But we're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart to Him. We're called to not contaminate ourselves with the sin and filth of the world and so on. We are called to be a morally pure people. But it's important to remember that under the Old Covenant, items could be holy as well. They were holy in the sense that they were set apart from common use. And they were set apart unto sacred use. And to use them, if they were holy, would be to not use something that would render somebody unclean or to do something that God had prohibited and not allowed to be done. So the meat that was offered, and say the sin offering, for instance, was to be regarded as holy. But beyond the flesh itself, according to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 27, whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. So in the Old Covenant, the people knew that if you had this holy meat, the sin offering meat that was offered to God, and if the priest put it in the fold of his garment, let's say he was moving it from one place to another, that meat did not become unclean ceremonially, but rather the garment that it was in became clean. But here's the question that Haggai asked the priests. If that fold of the garment, if that wing touches something else, will whatever it touches, he gives some examples here, if it touches cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, Will it become holy? Could it transfer that ceremonial holiness to something else? The priests knew the answer. They knew Leviticus 6. They knew a lot more than Leviticus 6. And they said, no, it can't transfer holiness. Okay, so first question. This is in contrast now to defilement. Watch the difference here. Watch the contrast. Verse 13. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these... Will the latter become unclean? So the idea there is if one touches a corpse, remember under the Old Testament law, the people would have been you know, around quite a few dead bodies, especially in the wilderness wanderings when that older generation was going to die before the younger generation plus Joshua and Caleb entered into the promised land. There were a lot of corpses around. And if somebody touched a corpse, inadvertently, intentionally, whatever it might be, they became unclean. But now if they touched something, like those examples in verse 12... Cooked food, oil, wine, other food, would it become unclean? And the priest answered at the end of verse 13, yes, it will become unclean. This is setting up an application. We'll see the application in verse 14, but first I want us to understand a contrast that is painted here. The Old Testament people had so many lessons built into their daily lives under the Mosaic Law to teach them about things like Holiness. And one of the big takeaways that you see from those two questions is this. You see that uncleanness is easily transferable. Cleanness, holiness, not so much. To put it another way, you might say sinfulness is quite contagious. Holiness, by and large, isn't. You see that? That's the idea, right? You put the holy meat in the garment, and the garment's made holy. That's good. It's set apart for sacred use. But if the garment touches something else, it's not going to make something else holy. But if you are a person who touched an unclean thing, like a dead body, and then you touch something else, it will become unclean. And this is the lesson that people were to know. Uncleanness is is contagious, and holiness is not, or at least uh, much less so. Now, we, we know this in the natural world. Right, you, you hear people say things when people get sick sometimes, if there's a family in the house, like, wow, the germ went through that household, right? Because you know it's easily contagious in often cases, right? Somebody gets sick in the house, it goes through the house. You don't hear people saying things like, you know, wow, immunity swept through that household. <laughs> you know, one person got sick, they got better, and before you knew it, everybody was immune. It's like we know these things in the natural world, Right? You take a little bit of dirt or filth, to use an example that Thomas More uses, right? and you put it into water. The way way he put it is, pollution is much more readily given and taken than purity. One drop of filth will defile a vase of water. Many drops of water will not purify a vase of filth. He extends the application with a quote from the New Testament, evil communications corrupt good manners. So it's a lesson that was built into the old covenant. You were seeing it play itself out. And for us, under the new covenant, we are to be reminded of how easily contractable uncleanness, defilement, sinfulness is, and how holiness is not so readily communicated. You know, in the natural world, again, we kind of see these things play out so often. I can remember years ago, Uh, I think 2019, might have been the end of 2018, I can remember being in the hospital visiting my grandmother, and uh, the hospital staff had gotten to a point where they were questioning whether or not she had TB or tuberculosis. And the steps that were taken to protect the staff and anybody who went into the room were very noticeable, because the idea was, you don't want somebody to contract this, you don't want somebody to contract TB, so we got to be very careful with things like this. The amount of care taken to guard the hospital staff and others was great. And yet, a good takeaway for us would be, yet with spiritual things, sometimes we could be so flippant as though walking through the mud of the world and staining our garments, dirtying our garments, if you will, is not a big deal. We have to remember that part of the Christian life, true religion as james defines it in james chapter 1 verse 27 included though it was not limited to keeping oneself unspotted from the world ephesians chapter 5 verse 11 tells us that we are not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather to reprove them paul told the corinthian christians after giving a list and saying, does Christ have fellowship with Baal, the table of God with the table of idols, and so on, after giving them a list of things like that, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. So just survey your life. Survey this week. Have you been in contact with things that from a New Testament perspective would be rendered as unclean? Things that could defile, unfruitful works of darkness. And maybe you didn't think anything of it. Maybe you're just watching a program and in the name of Christ is blasphemed. And it's like, okay, his, Christ was blasphemed. The a title of God being used, it was blasphemed. No big deal. I'll just kind of keep watching it. If I muddy up my garments a little bit, it's really not a big deal. I could watch this movie, I could listen to this thing, I could go to that place, I could do this, I could do that, I could be a part of this conversation. I might dirty myself up hearing them talk about these things and so on and being in this place and so on, and it's not really a big deal. And I just want to remind you, it is, you are called to be unspotted. Yes, you are in the world. I know, I know. Jesus knows. He said that. That you are in the world, just like the disciples were, but you are not to be of the world. So you have to be careful to keep yourself unspotted from the world, not defiling yourself, taking on the things that the world takes on as normal recreation, but you are called to be a holy people. And we'll get to the application of this, but before the application can be made corporately, it's got to be applied personally. And again... This was all mingled in. Just to take, take you a little bit more through the Old Testament, this was all mingled in to an Old Testament understanding of being separate, being holy. God put so many illustrations in the Old Testament for the people. In the Old Testament law, I would, I would call your attention to two places in specific, uh, specifically at this moment, Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 22. For instance, the people were not to plant two kinds of seed in their vineyard. If they did, the crops they planted and the fruit of the vineyard would be defiled. So there was not to be a mixture in seed. The examples go on. There was not to be a mixture in plowing. God told the people in Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, quoting from the NIV, do not plow with an ox and donkey yoked together. Just all these illustrations. Don't do that. Don't don't make the, the oxen and don't make the donkey be yoked together. Don't make them be unequally yoked. Do not wear the clothes of wool and linen woven together. So if you were an Old Testament Jew living under the Old Covenant, you could wear linen, you could wear wool, but you weren't supposed to wear it together. Examples could go on. Different kinds of animals were not to be mated. Leviticus 19, verse 19. So we're not under the Old Covenant law. But that doesn't mean the Old Covenant law is not instructive for us. All of these ways the people were told, you've got to keep certain things separate. You have to be a holy people. The dietary laws, right, of the Old Testament. The nations would know this was a different people. This was a holy people. And we're not under dietary laws. We're not under the Old Covenant law in that sense. But oh, how our lives, whether it's the kindness, whether it's the moral purity, whether it's the behavior on the scene and off the scene of the different places we are, are to communicate that we are a people set apart to the God who bought us with the blood of his Son. Now, this might be a little bit of an extended application, but I do just pretty quickly before going to verse 14, I do want to make a gospel application. So again, I know this is a little bit of an extended application, so I'm applying this further, but I want to uh, do so under the heading of a gospel application. We know as those who are born in sin and by nature sinners, we know that there's so many ways to sin in this world. There's so many ways to practice unrighteousness. You look at the language in First John, the world, the flesh, and the devil. you got those three things essentially conspiring throughout the entirety of our lives to just lead us into further and further unrighteousness. Yet we know that there's one way, one way to be made righteous in the sight of God. Many ways to be made unclean and further unclean. We come out of the womb unclean, right? We're conceived in iniquity because we are by nature sinners. We come out unclean. Then we by nature love darkness rather than light. And there's so many ways to do wickedness. There's so many ways to become unclean. But there's only one way to become clean. And that's through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's kind of taking that Old Testament dynamic of holiness not really contagious and sin really contagious and taking it to the ultimate point of the gospel and saying there's one way to be made righteous, but thanks be to God there is one way. Thanks be to God that God made a way where the one who is unclean could be made clean because there is a fountain that flows from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Powerful enough to wipe away every one of your sins. Thanks be to God. Through repentance and through believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose from the grave. Okay, with that that said, with that principle in view, let's see now how God applies this to the people of Haggai's day. Verse 14. Then Haggai said, So is this people, And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So that's how the Lord applied the Q&A to the remnant. Now, I would have you to know that there is a difference among commentators as to the state of the people when this was said. So when you look through uh, different commentaries, you see uh, different commentators will say different things. Some believe this to be a reflection, especially in light of what's coming next, of the uncleanness that accompanied the people prior to resuming the rebuilding of the temple. In that case, because the people had laid the altar down, they had done that years back, so they would be offering sacrifices, but what they were offering was essentially unclean because they had neglected the work of rebuilding the temple. So whatever they offered, whatever, work of the, whatever the work of their hands were, they were unclean because the temple continued to lie in ruins. And that, whether that's, the state of the, whether that's the exact application of this, that's nonetheless applicable. Because think about it, the people were going through the motions for years while neglecting the work of God. They're offering sacrifices, they're doing those things, yet the work of God was left undone And they became their priorities and the work of God wasn't. So it's a fitting application. Is it the immediate application of this? Well, some believe so. The other possibility is that this was an application to the remnant at the time of Haggai's prophesying. Perhaps as they engaged in the work of rebuilding the temple, as they were offering what they needed to offer, they thought their religious actions building the holy temple, doing that holy thing of rebuilding the temple, maybe they thought that their holy actions were enough to sanctify them. And as a result of doing that, they engaged in a measure, at least, of externalism. Maybe their hands were unclean because of immorality, So they're like, hey, we're building the temple, but if we engage in immorality on the side, not so much of a big deal because we're building the temple. Or maybe they were doing uh, disrepute to the old covenant law, leaving certain things undone, not going through the acts of cleanness prescribed in the law, paying attention to those things, but I'm building the temple. Therefore, touching the temple and building the temple sanctifies me. Maybe it was just the indifference of their heart. We see that quite a few times in the Old Testament. God would get very angry, if you will, to put it in human terms. God would get angry with the people, and demonstrate his anger, show him his disposition of anger towards them, because they would engage through, engage in the outward signs of worship, but their hearts wouldn't be in it. They would worship God with their lips, and their hearts were far from him. So that could be all possibilities of what was going on here. I do want to note, I do want to note, though, that the people were not in an abject state of rebellion. At least that's my conviction. Given the repentance that's already demonstrated in the book of Haggai, given the fact that the message of Zechariah was given to them like a month earlier and they repented, and given the fact of what we see coming in the book, that God promises, as we'll see, to bless them. So all of that would lend itself to the fact that even if there was an issue with the people, most immediately this being applied to them, they weren't in a state of abject rebellion. They had demonstrated in the past, and they would again in that case, show themselves to be, by God's grace, a repentant people. But I think it's very important for us to remember these principles. As important as it is to be here in corporate worship, and you know it is, it is important to be here in corporate worship. This is a holy thing in the sight of God. The people of God gathering to proclaim together in song the gospel of God, celebrating the Lord's Supper, hearing the word of God preached, and so on. I just want to remind you that being in a holy place, being with holy people, Right? A set-apart place for worship, as it were. With people who have been set apart by the grace of God. Being in that kind of place, hearing the holy word of God being proclaimed, does not necessarily make you holy. It could be a, me- a means by which God furthers your sanctification, furthers your edification, growing in grace, and so on. But just being in a place will not make you holy. If there is personal impurity in your life, that needs to be confessed, repented of, and turned away from don't let it taint all the other offerings in your life. If there's an attitude of arrogance, if there's a tongue that gossips or talks negatively about others, if there's even a pursuit of doing the right things with the wrong heart, turn away from such uncleanness, lest it taint the New Testament church building, as it were, that you are called to be a part of building. More so, more specifically, if it taint the work of your hands. God still wants his people to have clean hands and a pure heart for those engaged in his service. But the good news is, the good news is, you don't have to go through a whole bunch of ceremonial steps to have clean hands. You know what you do? You very quickly, very practically, you tell God, "I'm sorry." I'm not going to do this, but part of me would want to like walk you through this. Ready? "I'm sorry." When's the last time you told God, "I'm sorry?" When's the last time you as a Christian said, I know that I'm forgiven and I know I have positional peace with you, but yet I ask for forgiveness practically. I've sinned against you and I know you forgive me in Christ, yet I'm sorry. That's how you practically walk in cleanness. You tell God I'm sorry and then by God's grace you know there's a fountain that continuously flows from the cross as it were. You are made clean positionally by the cross of Christ. You're made practically clean as you turn away from sin as you confess your sin to Him and you walk in newness in life. It's only a step away you might say. You don't have to go through all these ceremonial hoops. There is much reason to rejoice. Much reason to rejoice. But again, God still wants his people to have clean hands and a pure heart. I think sometimes, this is a quick pastoral, pastoral parenthetical note, sometimes the pendulum can swing so far from legalism where Christians, under the guise of exalting the gospel, make obedience seemingly inconsequential. Like obedience, that doesn't really matter. We're saved not by our works. Therefore, obedience doesn't matter. Wrong conclusion. We're saved by grace, not by our works. And obedience really does matter. Not to our salvation, but to evidence the reality of our salvation. Now what we're going to do for the remaining portion of time that we have to look through this message. I'm going to read now verses 15 through 19. I'll make uh, some comments along the way, but then I want to call to attention uh, a few points for us as we seek to apply this text a little bit further and see something very precious at the end of this passage. Verses 15 through 19 read, "...but now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord." From that time, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would only be 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. So this draws our minds back to Haggai 1, when the Lord was telling the people, I'm the one who's behind the difficult providences that you're going through. The people should have known that. God promised in the old covenant law, if you rebel against me, things like this will happen. And by, by God's grace, it was actually an act of loving chastisement to draw the people back to him, yet they did not respond. He says, I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider... Now, this is some present present context still being developed here. Is the seed still in the barn? Differences among commentators as to what that means, but I think the likely answer is it means that they had sown seed. It was the time for seed sowing. So they had no seed left in the barn, so because they had sown it already, which might also speak to the meager reserves that they had. Basically, they didn't even have any reserves left at this point. They used the seed that they had, and they sowed it. So they don't have a harvest yet. But the Lord reminds them, not only as a concerned grain, but look at the rest of verse 19, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. It's a dangerous state for the people to be in. So even the fruit crops aren't coming in. It's as though the people were not only in a dismal state, but they were in a dangerous state at this point. Now, you've had so many years of famine because of disobedience or lack because of disobedience. It seems like they're getting to the point where they can't withstand much more. And there they are brought to the brink. And now the Lord says this at the end of verse 19. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. So you got a passage that in large measure is is heavy, right? It's not like he encouraged them in the previous passage, but in this context, he's reminding them of a lot of their sin and maybe calling attention to some of their sin in the present as well. But I want to call your attention to three things here. Three things. One is a general takeaway, and then two are going to be very specifically tethered to the text. The general takeaway is this. First, God wants a deeply thinking people. I say that because we see the word consider again. We saw it earlier in Haggai 1 verse 5. We saw it earlier in Haggai chapter 1 verse 7. And then we see it here. We see it in verse 15. We see it again in verse 18. God wants his people to consider. More literally translated, you might remember, more literally translated, it's set your heart Earlier, he told them in chapter 1, set your heart upon your ways. Look at what you've been doing and look at the results that it's been yielding. He wanted them to actually think about their providence and think about his hand in their providence. Think about it. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just go through every, everyday life not actually thinking about what's happening. How did you get to where you are? Maybe you will learn how to change things if you actually say, I did that wrong and I made that turn and I made that choice and that's why I am where I am. I'm not just a victim of random happenstance. I have made decisions that have brought me to this point. He wanted the people to see that. And so often people don't do that. They just think, well, I don't know how this happened. I don't know how my marriage ended up like this. I don't know how the kids ended up like this. I don't know how my life ended up like this. I don't know how my walk with God ended up like this. Have you actually stopped to look back at the series of decisions that have led to this point? God wants a thinking people. And that's not just thinking about theology. It is thinking about theology. More about that in a moment. But it's also thinking about the pondering the path of your feet. So many times people end up in the same situation over and over again because they never ponder the path of their feet and say, I'm doing that thing again. That thing that I used to do when God chastised me for it and I stopped doing it for a while, I'm doing it again. I want to stop it now. I don't want to go walking down that path. I know where this goes. And you know this could be applied to so many areas of life. This could be applied personally. This could be applied to habits. This could be applied to relationships. This could be applied to so many areas of life. God wants a thinking people. Think about things. Think about your own life and what you can learn from what's happened in the past so that you might make right choices by God's grace in the present and in the future. I do want to apply it a little bit more. It's not strictly an intellectual exercise that's devoid of affections. God wants his people to be thinking deeply about him To have their thinking stir their affections. And I just want to encourage you, what I would tell you to think about above all else, but not to the exclusion of else, of other things, would be to think about the Lord Jesus Christ and to think about what awaits you if you are a son or daughter of God. New Testament speaks about that quite a bit. Colossians chapter three, verses one through four. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Just stop there for a moment, right? Think of the past week. Think of the news cycle. Think of your going on your phone. Think of checking Twitter feeds. Think of checking news sites, right? Are you doing more of setting your mind on things that are in heaven or more of setting your mind on things on the earth? I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying that to help con- instruct you to say, Scripture's telling you here very clearly, set your minds on things above. Set it. Focus. Get focused attention to those blessed things that God has secured for you or that await you in Christ Jesus. And the reason, Paul goes on to give a reason here, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling, consider, think think it through, think it up and down, our implications of the language, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God wants a thinking people. He wants us, as I want to remind you in the second point, He wants us to be thinking about His hand in our lives and the path of our feet, so that we might learn from his providential dealings, or from our previous actions. And he wants us to be thinking about divine truth. He wants us to be thinking about his son that he has given for us. Second, and I've already kind of made this point, but I'll just reinforce it here from the text. God wanted them to learn from the past. If you look at verses 15 through 17, God is calling them to remember the past. Before they started rebuilding the temple, he was calling them to remember. Remember those agricultural returns? You were expecting 20, and you got 10. So you got 50% less than what you thought. Gives them another example. You got 60% less than what you were expecting. You see that in verse 16. They did a mix of what they wanted and what they thought they had to do to survive. Quite a common blend today. A mix of what they wanted and a mix of what they thought they had to do to survive. And they justified setting aside the work and the worship of God. And God gave them gracious chastisements for their delinquency. God wanted them to remember, as uh, one pastor had put it, he wanted them to remember their delinquency. God wanted them to remember that. The delinquency is related to the temple. He wanted them to remember their despair. I might use the word disappointment. Like Remember how you put the temple aside and you were constantly disappointed? He wanted them to remember that. And he also wanted them to remember their defiance. Remember their defiance. I smote you, the Lord said, every work of your hands with blasting, mildew, and hail, and so on, but they didn't return. Now think about this. If they actually listened to the Lord, if they looked back and said, I do remember my previous delinquency, then that would spur them on, by God's grace, I would argue, to be diligent and not delinquent. If they remembered their previous despairing and they said, now if we change things, if we put God first, there's going to be so much more reason for rejoicing. And instead of being uh, defiant to God, if they by his grace became compliant to his word, they would have applied what the Lord was telling them rather rightly. And I do want to make one quick application here. A little bit of a side application, though I think it's applicable. The way you get to that point is by God's grace having a soft heart. You could, even, you could do a heart check right now. I don't know. I see faces, but I, can't, I don't know your hearts. So if I look around this room, I look at different faces, I don't know what people are thinking. People could be thinking all kinds of different things. It's an interesting thing to stand where I stand. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if, if the heart, if your heart is soft, you're hearing and it, it's like, I don't want to hear any more of this now. You know, I, Maybe that's it. Maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe there's somebody who's like, I'm so thankful for the grace of God, and yet again God is reaching out to me. And he's calling attention to that thing. I know that thing. Maybe a big thing, maybe a little thing. And he's, as a father, he's telling me, let that go. Wash your hands. Follow me. And that's a soft heart, ready to hear his rebuke. It's the person who's ready. Like, tell me what I, what I do wrong. I'm sorry. Quick, quick, quick to say that. I'm sorry, Lord. Rather than, I'll never say it. You won't find me saying it. I'm not going to say it. It's bad to do that with people. It's worse to do that with the Lord. So I don't know, I can't see your heart. But I would encourage you, you want to have a soft heart. In a good way towards the things of God, a pliable heart. I'll pass something along to you. By God's grace, maybe it'll stick with you. When you think of Old Testament kings, perhaps one that we should seek to emulate, very much so in this regard anyway, is uh, King Josiah. Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 27. Picking up in the middle of a passage, essentially, but I want you to hear a statement concerning him. Because your heart was tender... That's the language there in Hebrew. Soft, tender. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against his inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. You want to have a soft heart. If you get to the point where you just say, enough's enough, I've heard enough about this, I'm tired of the rebukes that come from God's word in Haggai. They say, I don't want to do that. Soft heart. Richard Sibbs, speaking about a soft heart, called it one that's sensible, pliable, and yielding. And when it relates to the things of God, that's what you want it to be. Sensible, pliable, yielding. Mold me, change me, speak to me, direct me. I want that, Lord. Give give it to me. me. Give me instruction. You give me so much love and grace. Give me instruction. Rebuke me where I need to be rebuked. And finally, I want you to see this closing. God wanted them to set their hearts upon his gracious promise the end of the end of verse 19 yet from this day on i will bless you yet from this day on i will bless you there's so much that could be unpacked from that statement so much now whatever the exact context of the people was if they were living in uncleanness at that point in time then think of the graciousness of this promise I'm going to bless you. And the implication would be that they would get it right, they would repent as they had repented before, and God gives them a gracious promise, I will bless you. In other words, the harvest is coming. And even if they had to wait, and they had already repented, and what has been said was an application more so to the past, to instruct them in the present, nonetheless, God was meeting them right now at a time of desperation. When they were essentially at wits' end, there was no seed in the barn, the fruit harvest hadn't come in, and here comes God as the rescuer that He is. Yet from this day on, it's essentially they're at wits' end, from this day on, I will bless you. Think of how instructive that is. They didn't have a harvest. It wasn't as though God gave them proof of that, He didn't give them proof. There's no seed in the barn, you don't have the harvest, you don't have any proof. But they did. The promise was the proof. The proof, you could say, is the promise. God's word was good enough. I'm going to come through for you. Now notice, why is this instructive for us? They had to walk by faith and not by sight. It's a good reminder for us as Christians that the Christian life is meant to be lived like that. It's a life that's lived by faith and not by sight. Think of the other application for us. God was telling them essentially from this day on, I'll bless you, there's going to be a harvest They needed to keep doing the work that God had called them to do. And if they did not faint in due time, they would reap a harvest. And so the applications are there for us in the gospel. There are so many things that await you and I. So many things. And God has simply given you His word. Yes, there may have been interventions, answered prayers in your life, so on. But at the end of the day, the proof of His promise is His word. One of my uh, favorite occurrences that happens right now, rather frequently, is when Thea, Thea, she did this on the way into uh, church this morning, so I was reminded of it and thought it would illustrate the point rather well. She has her dolly with her today. So if you see her with her dolly, it's Dolly the Della. That's what she named her dolly. And she'll often tell me, because we were in the mall one day, and we saw there was a section where there were dolls, and she had wanted a doll. And I had told her, wait for Christmas. And then when she got the gift, Dolly the Della on Christmas, I reminded her, I'm like, remember, we were in the store and you wanted the doll and Daddy told you, wait for Christmas? And she gets, you can see it, it's one of the most cute, cutest things that I see her do. She'll say, remember, Daddy said, wait for Christmas. And I got it. And I love the way that in God's providence, she's reinforcing that truth. Like when she holds up Dolly the Della, it's like, remember, Daddy? Remember you said, wait for Christmas. And I got it. She didn't have any proof. I didn't like put a down payment on Dolly the Della in front of her and say, look, it's assured to come. And we even actually have a down payment. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. So we have even more than just the proof of his word. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. But it's the proof of his promise. That is the proof. He is trustworthy. And when he told the people from this day on, I will bless you, they were expected to believe it. It was as good as done. And when God tells you that he will be with you, that he will not forsake you, that he's prepared a place for you, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To live is Christ and to die is to gain. When he paints a picture of what's awaiting you and so on. When he tells you that you are forgiven and your conscience can be cleansed from dead works and so on. And you don't need to fear death and so on. When he tells you these things, he expects you to believe him because his word is, if you will, proof. It's good enough. He is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. And people were going to be blessed from that day forward. That didn't mean their life was going to be perfect. That didn't mean that they weren't going to have problems. That just meant by the grace of God, God was going to freshly provide for them. And I think, according with God's gracious working in their lives, in concurrence with their seeking first, to use New Testament language and applying it to the Old Testament, with them seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Obedience is... Not the ground of salvation, at least not our obedience. The perfect obedience of Christ is. But nonetheless, obedience is the ground of blessing. Fruitfulness in our lives, usefulness, and so on. And God told the people, from this day on, I will bless you. With that said, we come to uh, verse 20. And Lord willing, next week we will conclude our study of this amazing book of the prophet Haggai. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank You for all the instruction that's found in Your Word. Thank You for the Old Testament law and and all that we can learn from it, Lord, that it is rich, filled with doctrine, filled with instruction, filled with, when applicable, reproof and correction. We thank You, Heavenly Father, for the uh, great high calling that You've given us, that You have made us positionally holy, Lord, that You've set us apart and You've washed us by the blood of Your Son, That we what we could not do, you did through the offering, that once and for all offering through which we are sanctified. The offering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which we will commemorate during our agape meal. We thank you for him. But Father, we do pray that you might find us by your grace walking in such a way so as to walk in practical purity and cleanness, Lord. May you find us, Heavenly Father, where appropriate taking perhaps brief strolls down memory lane just to learn from the past so that we might not repeat errors from the past and the present. Help us to grow in that grace, Lord. Help us to be a a thinking people where our thinking fans the flame of our affections. And Father, I pray that you would help us by your grace to grow in the grace of trusting you, that even as the people were called to take you at your word, And that promise was to alleviate the fears and the anxiousness that they no doubt had about the forthcoming harvest and would they have enough food and so on. It's as though you told them you would provide for them and take care of them. I pray that your precious promises might alleviate the anxiety and the fears that perhaps many in this room have even now. Oh, Father, may you wrought in us such confidence in you that we have the peace that ought to Um, guard our hearts and minds and surpass understanding, Lord, that precious peace. May it do just that as we think about your truth and believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.